The golden rule is treat others as you would like to be treated. And we've been taught it as something we should aspire to. It only works when we're around people who are just like us. If we're around people that are just like us, we don't have enough diversity or we're not gonna have enough creativity, enough innovation, enough rigor. Like we're gonna be sub-optimizing like crazy. So a sign that things are not good is if I can treat others as I wanna be treated and they're just fine with that. You wanna seek out difference and then you wanna treat others as they wanna be treated and you wanna have super curious inquiry to figure that out. I'm your host, Michelle King, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who were innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. In 2018, Uber founder Travis Kalanick stepped down as CEO following a number of very public scandals which revealed the toxic nature of the organization's culture. One of the scandals involved Susan Fowler, a former engineer who wrote about her experiences of sexual harassment at the company. Sadly, Uber is not an isolated case. The most common reason cited by women who leave the tech industry or a lack of opportunities for advancement, a hostile work environment, and dissatisfaction with senior leadership. In fact, studies show that 40% of women with engineering degrees quit or never even enter the profession, with the vast majority leaving due to hostile working conditions. But how do so many young tech companies like Uber develop these types of toxic working conditions? And what can we learn from cases like these? On this episode, Frances Fay, Professor of Technology and Operations at Harvard Business School and workplace culture expert who helped turn Uber's culture around, will join us to discuss how you can tell if your workplace is toxic and what companies can do to fix this. Following a full investigation by a law firm into the allegations of misconduct at Uber, the company set up an anonymous hotline for employees to report issues of misconduct. In total, 225 claims were made, which resulted in 20 employees being fired and seven more warned. What always amazes me about situations like this is how it got so bad. What creates a toxic workplace culture to start with? And then importantly, What keeps it in place? A toxic culture can come about for a few reasons, but I either observe that there are loads of bad people and that's where the toxicity comes from, or there are a few bad people, and I'm using bad, you know, loosely, but a few bad people and the rest of it, it's not toxic, but people have been following the wrong secret memos. I don't go to organizations where the majority of people are bad. So, for example, when I went to Uber in June of 2017, and it was known as, you know, a pretty bad culture, we separated from 20 people in June of 2017. There were more than 10,000 people, and the culture was changed within nine months. So it's that kind that I'm drawn to. It's really the vast majority are good people, 
they've just gotten into very bad habits, some of their own doing, but usually more of leadership and management. For example, at Uber, I was called after Susan Fowler's just heart-wrenching and horrific blog describing what she experienced. And after you learn what she experiences, if you then have the stomach to look at it again, you'll just see management fallout after management fallout. And so people were reporting things up, but they weren't getting responded to. There were 3,000 managers at Uber, and none of them had been trained on how to be a manager. They all joined as an individual contributor. With hypergrowth, they got promoted very quickly. They even became promoted to managers of managers very quickly without adequately being educated on how to do the job, I believe. And I observe management can be taught. And once we taught people how to manage, as you can imagine, all of those heart-wrenching things went away. It's generally not the people's fault. The people are being led. And leadership really matters. And so I got pretty obsessed with the role, the disproportionate role that leaders could have on making organizations improve either incrementally or at a really dramatic rate. So that's where all of my research and all of my efforts go, whether I'm teaching students how to do it or doing it with companies. We're looking to make dramatic change. One of the things we've learned is that meaningful change only happens quickly. So if someone is in the midst of a three or five year change effort and they call, I say, just please call me when there's a year to go because nothing takes longer than a year. One of the challenges with working in a toxic workplace is that most people deny the culture is toxic. And so it takes somebody like Susan Fowler to be brave and speak out, to disrupt this denial and make it safe for others to speak up. But this comes at a tremendous cost to the individual. A better approach would be for companies to actively monitor their cultures for signs that they might be toxic. Here, Francis shares a few of them. If I walk into a company or if I'm just asking you to do a self-diagnosis of, like, how do you know you have a culture problem? And the test I always do is the same, which is I look to see if there are demographic tendencies associated with who's thriving. What I mean by that is, in terms of achievement or sentiment, so promotion and satisfaction, for example, if there are demographic tendencies associated with who's achieving and what their satisfaction is, we have a culture problem. So that's the first thing. Uh, if there are no demographic tendencies, you can go look, you might have a strategy problem, you might have something else. But that's how we know there's a culture problem. It's also important, that's how we know when we will no longer have a culture problem. So when black women are thriving just as much as white men, as an example, we no longer have a culture problem. So that's the first diagnosis of how do we know we have it? And then here are examples of how it manifests. And this is particularly true in organizations that have really strong cultures. And so like the, they really take the cult part of culture seriously. And I love those cultures, by the way. I'm really drawn to them. So Uber had a very strong culture. Riot Games had a very strong culture. WeWork had a very strong culture. I'm just really drawn to these organizations that are trying to tap into something much larger than the revenue and cost of what they're doing. A way in which these cultures often can go wrong is if one of their cultural values, which was 
created for beautiful reasons, like really beautiful reasons. Like default to trust is a very common cultural value in these types of cultures. And, you know, who doesn't want to default to trust? Who doesn't like, yes, let's give each other the benefit of the doubt. Like this is a, a truism that's awesome. The culture becomes toxic if an individual starts utilizing default to trust for personal gain. So instead of I'm going to default to trust and give you the benefit of the doubt, if I'm tired and you're questioning me beyond when I want to be questioned, I would say to you, default to trust, exclamation point. (laughs) So I've just used it for my own personal gain as opposed to this beautiful thing that we give it, um, we give it to one another, I'm demanding it from you. So uh, cultural values get weaponized, and that's often a form of a toxic culture whenever we're taking these beautiful things and being self-serving with them. We often think of company cultures as static, but they're not. Cultures are made up of day-to-day interactions, behaviors, exchanges, and norms that all of us engage in. Because of this, companies need to actively manage their cultures and renew them as needed, which is something Francis says we need now more than ever. Every cultural value is going to become worn out, which is why I don't pour liquid cement on them. Particularly externalities might happen, like after every COVID and Black Lives Matter and lots of things that are going on now, I expect many organizations will want to update their cultural values. I find that to be a very healthy sign of an organization. But in terms of tolerating people using culture to their own personal aims, well, I sure wouldn't put those people in leadership positions, and I'd be super hesitant even in having them as individual contributors. Again, Uber had more than 10,000 people, and we separated from 20. So in terms of the people that had to be separated, it's certainly not more than 20. And in each at Riot Games, fewer people and fewer separations. So I find that, again, it's disproportionate for the organizations that I go to work with. I go to work with organizations that are largely good people that have gotten into bad habits, almost always through lack of education in doing it, and with cultures that have worn out their, like, cultures have changed, but we haven't acknowledged it and tried to update them. Both of those organizations, by the way, redid their cultural values by engaging the entire organization. So cultural values weren't handed to us, we created them. And that's a way to get them to live even stronger. The most common interaction that people have are in meetings. So meetings is a really important time to do it. And particularly now, when our meetings are now the only time we see each other, I'd say it's even more important. But meeting dynamics matter a lot. So If some people talk and some people don't, if some people get talked over, if it's not safe to bring up things, if you make decisions after the meetings, like all of the meeting dynamics, all of those norms, it's important to address those really deliberately. One of the things that happened when I got to Uber was something that I honestly couldn't believe I was observing, but then I have now seen it at other companies, which is that the senior team would be texting in the senior meeting. Like, so the senior team gets together to lead this 10,000 plus organization, doesn't get together that much. It's really important when they do. And people were texting. So I was like, gosh, that's weird. And then I found out they're texting one another about the meeting. 
So there are side conversations going on about the meeting. That's like a super unsafe climate. Now, it could have happened for all kinds of good reasons, but the prescription to fix it, super easy. Technology off and away during these meetings. It also helped us to make really good decisions much faster that didn't need to be relitigated. So I think meeting dynamics, you will see a lot of cultural problems, not all, but you'll see a lot of them within meetings. And so it's the senior meetings, and then it's also how your managers have meetings and your manager's managers have meetings. I think that's part of it. That's the development part. There's also the selection, promotion, and retention, um, but that's where I would start. Since the pandemic started, most people have been working remotely, engaging with their teams and managers on Zoom. Here, Francis shares some of the ways that toxic cultures play out in a virtual world. If you used to meet with somebody once a week, you did formal things with them. The informal stuff happened, as you say, at the water cooler. Now that we don't have that, you need to meet with people twice a week, one for the formal and one for the informal. Now, I don't want that to sound like we have to meet all the time. Fortunately, we have been super inefficient with our meetings in the past. So now if we can be amazingly efficient, it frees up all the time and space we will need, but we need deliberate time for informal. So when I say, hey, how are you doing? If you say fine, I should read that as you don't want to talk about how you're doing. You don't feel safe to talk about how you're doing. I haven't set the conditions that you think I even care how you're doing. So we have to now be super deliberate about how do you communicate to people that you care. And that usually happens with curious inquiry. Like somebody says, fine, great. And I know that school for kids, I'm like going back and forth myself on what to do with this. I hope that that decision is is working out okay for your family. Pause. One, two, three. And then they, you're giving an opening for people to talk about it. So I think we have to be deliberate about the informal because otherwise we're just going to be in a sea of formality on Zoom. We actually have to rethink how we're doing work if most of it is remote. It's not hard, but it's got to be deliberately rethought. So meetings should not be more than 50 minutes. Like you should never have a two-hour meeting on Zoom. Oh my goodness, watch everyone and you will see just at about the 75 mark, everybody is done. Like everybody's done, but you have to pull through. So I think we just need to do very deliberate things differently for remote work. And then I think in terms of COVID and with things like that going on and with racial injustice, you can't tell how someone is doing by looking at them. So maybe we had like a good sixth sense and good intuition. When we're on Zoom, almost pretend that we're blind or close to blind. We don't have intuition. So then how else can we surface how people are doing? And I think it's really important to use our words. Good news about culture is that we control it. Like we guide discretionary behavior we have complete influence on the culture. That's the good news. The bad news is if we are not meticulous at nurturing and managing it, we could have the best strategy in the world and it's not going to matter. Leaders really create the cultures in companies. They set the standards for behaviors, which means they have the power to create cultures of equality, where people feel like they can be themselves at work and be valued for this. Here, Francis shares what leaders need to do to create inclusive cultures. 
To me, it starts and stops with treating inclusion like an urgent achievable goal, just like you have had other urgent achievable goals in the past. I find that super rigorous, really hard charging, good problem solving organizations become very passive when it comes to inclusion. And so I treat it like we treat every other problem, which is we have a scorecard, we have data, we have principles, and we fix it and we know when it's fixed. And in my experience, it gets fixed very quickly. So that's the first thing is we have to move the conversations about race and gender and other things off of a third rail and make them completely discussable. What we have learned is that it's easier for some to discuss gender and race, particularly in the United States. When we're talking about Black people in the United States, people get super duper hesitant. My problem with that is that coincides with a lack of progress. So the representation, it's really the equality and equal access. So if there aren't a lot of Black people at the top of an organization, I know we either didn't hire them, didn't develop them, didn't promote them, or didn't retain them. It's not any more magical than that. There's just, there's only four causes. Let's do the root cause analysis, find out which one it is. And the prescriptions for each of them are different. So we really have to know what they are. And what's true for black men, for example, might not be true for Asian women, might not be true for gay, white, transgender. Like, you know, it's different for everyone. And so I want to have the humility to not think what worked over there will work over here. But it always comes down to one of those four things. So here's the most common pitfall. And it's, you know, it doesn't matter if we're talking about race or gender. And I'm sure you've heard it. Oh, I'd love to have more senior blank, but I just can't find any. It's like for a board, for a senior team, it perpetuates a myth that is absolutely untrue. There is not a pipeline problem, full stop. There are plenty of people out there. In fact, for boards in particular, the number of boards that ask me, oh my gosh, I can't find a woman, can you help me find it? And the number of amazing women I know that have never been asked, the number of amazing women dwarfs the number of boards that are looking for women. So there is not, and I find it true for race as well. So If you realize there's no pipeline problem, then if you can't find them, it's because you are not looking in the right place. And so what I find happens most of the time is I go fishing in this part of the pond and I have never, ever found women of color in that part of the pond. And now I want to find women of color. So I just start putting in more lines in that part of the pond. And I wonder why working harder doesn't work. So we have to acknowledge is, What we're doing works like crazy for the demographics that are thriving. And it is ineffective for those that are not. So let's first acknowledge that we need different processes. As soon as you realize, oh, where I'm looking for people is wrong. So, you know, I hear, oh, I can't find any women in tech, which is just like one of the more laughable things I've ever heard. But the conversation goes, oh, you, have, you can't find women in tech, I see. And well, last time you were at the Grace Hopper conference, what was your reaction? They're like, the Grace Hopper what? <laughs> well, it's a, a place where 15,000 women get together every year. And pretty sure every one of those women is open to having a conversation about, <laughs> about working at your company. And then they're like, oh, well, I've been there. I'm like, okay, well, how about lesbians who tech? Because that's... That's an amazing conference with almost 10,000 people a year now attend. 
you know, that's women in tech for every group. We have to look differently and then we have to have different conversations. Finally, Francis shares what I think is truly a fantastic action that each of us can take to create the culture that we really want to have in our workplaces. The golden rule is treat others as you would like to be treated. And we've been taught it as like a something we should aspire to. It only works when we're around people who are just like us. If we're around people that are just like us, we don't have enough diversity or we're not going to have enough creativity, enough innovation, enough rigor. Like we're going to be sub-optimizing like crazy. So a sign that things are not good is if I can treat others as I want to be treated and they're just fine with that. You want to seek out difference and then you want to treat others as they want to be treated and you want to have super curious inquiry to figure that out. I really hope you all enjoyed today's episode. You know, I just love this idea of ditching the golden rule and contributing to our workplace cultures by treating people how they want to be treated, rather than how we would like to be treated. I also think all of us need to start paying attention to how we're showing up on Zoom meetings and drop those side chats, which can be exclusionary and even toxic. And finally, before we go, just a quick reminder that you can get a copy of my book, The Fix, or the electronic or audible version from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, or at all major retailers. Also, you can sign up to my monthly newsletter or reach out to me for interviews at michellepeking.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all again next week.